this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a director, a producer, scriptwriter and author. Based in Los Angeles, he's produced and directed several films, including the 2014 feature documentary Enter the Jungle about the rise of mixed martial arts fighting in Brazil. He's also produced television programmes such as Panorama and The Late Show for the BBC and worked as a contributing writer on literature, film and music for the London Review of Books and the LA Review of Books. His new book, Song Noir, Tom Waits and the Spirit of Los Angeles, offers a detailed and gritty account of musician Tom Waits' formative first decade in L.A. Alex Harvey, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you very much, Georgina. Your book is very, very far away from your own beginnings. Yes, I mean, I grew up in the northeast, although I suppose you could describe those as gritty, northeast in the 1970s, certainly. But yes, I only really started to want to write the book when I'd moved to Los Angeles, which was about 2008. So I've been there, what, 14 years now. And I started to realise what a what an amazing L.A. artist he was. Uh, suddenly his work made a lot more sense in the way in which there's so many references to Los Angeles. And I thought, well, I'd like to kind of look at him in that in that way. But yes, I mean, I started listening to to Tom Waits as, you know, as a student in the 80s, around the time of sort of swordfish trombone, and loved it, you know, would play it going out on a Saturday night. Who introduced you to Tom Waits? Uh, a very great friend of mine at, at Oxford who died very young, alas, who had the most wonderful eclectic taste in music who'd introduced me to things like, you know, Schoenberg or Captain Beefheart, jazz guitar, you name it. He, he had the most brilliant record collection. And he put on Swordfish Trombones one winter's night, I think, in 1984. And, and I was hooked, really. I know many of the people that you were at university with, and they're all... You took them all along for the ride. <laughs> Absolutely. I became a bit of an evangelist, I guess, for Waits, who struck me even then you know, as a student of literature, to be an absolutely front-rank uh, writer, a lyricist, right up there in, in terms of American poetry, I think, hugely influenced by the Beats, of course, but Ginsberg and, and, and Kerouac. But pretty early on, he has his own unique voice. Mm. Who were you influenced by at that time, apart from Waits, in terms of your literary inspirations? Well, I remember reading very much the poetry of Auden, when I was a teenager, and uh, I suppose other writers from the 30s, you know, Orwell, but also Louis McNeese, Stephen Spender, those writers, and they all seemed to have gone to Oxford. So I thought, well, you know, in order to be a writer, you've got to do that, you know, because I went to Oxford and didn't write a line of poetry. But, yes, that was very much... I, I loved particularly the English Auden before, before he leaves to go and live in the States in 1939. And still do, I still read Auden on a very regular basis. You went into television and you produced or directed some really extraordinary films, or award-winning films. Well, thank you very much. I was lucky enough to work on a programme, for example, called The Late Show, which was an arts, BBC arts show, where you had extreme uh, freedom. I mean, I could make films about the death of Albert Camus or Guy Debord, the situationist writer, or abstract sculpture and Barbara Hepworth, gambling, almost on any subject that you, you could choose. And that gave you great freedom as a director to, to learn the craft and to learn telling stories in different ways. I mean, later I worked a lot for Channel 4, and likewise at that time in the 90s, 
it was a really exciting place to work because, again, you could experiment with form. You could do all kinds of ways of telling, you know. Mm. Do you think that we've lost that within British television? I think so, to some extent. Um, although, of course, you know, given the explosion of the internet, you can find all kinds of voices on the web that maybe don't have, you know, a, a broadcaster and a, and a channel behind them, but are, you know, extremely interesting and, and similarly eclectic. But yes, I think mainstream broadcasting has become far more, you know, attuned to the demands of ratings. And therefore, some, a programme like The Late Show, which basically I kind of really learnt my craft uh, as a director on, I don't think that's, that's really possible in today's sort of climate now. What prompted your move to LA? Well, there's a story that the Americans say about a, a certain bank robber who was asked, you know, why he robbed banks. And he said, well, that's where the money is. And I think it's somewhat similar if you work in film and television. You know, LA is the centre of uh, the world's entertainment industry. So sooner or later, you kind of want to gravitate there. Which is exactly what Tom Waits did too. Yeah, well, of course, he he was born there in that sense. He didn't need to kind of move, although he did move away when he was a teenager. His parents split up uh, when he was about 10. But he he was born and, and, and spent the first few years in Whittier, which is a rather bland uh, suburb of L.A., almost like the kind of the Midwest. It was actually used as a location for the film uh, Back to the Future, which might give you an example of it. So he certainly didn't come from the gutter. I mean, his parents were really stoutly middle class. His father, a school teacher, Frank, from Irish stock. His mother, a very religious woman from a Norwegian immigrant background. So very very contrasting uh, parental influences. And then he, he, he spent his teenage years down near San Diego, a suburb called Chula Vista, famously working in a very rough neighbourhood called uh, National City, where a lot of the sailors would come visiting prostitutes, shore leave, and he would, as a very young dishwasher and, and waiter on table, sit and eavesdrop pick up, soak up their conversations, get that early taste for the sort of demotic mm. which uh, characterises his writing. And so he would... There's a wonderful quote. Uh, he says, you know, that he would literally kind of sit by the, the jukebox listening to kind of Ray Charles and dreaming of, well, how do you get into the jukebox? How do you kind of what, project yourself there? Looking for some... He calls it a cathartic vindication that he would move beyond the broken marriage of his parents and, and find this path. Mm. I mean, his origin story, though, is famously kind of fabricated at different points of his life. Oh, he makes up all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, his sort of, he makes up a resume for himself where he seems to have done just about every possible job that a uh, an unskilled young man could do in America. He claims, of course, that he was born in a taxi en route to the hospital. And that kind of suits him because that sort of idea of already being on the road, of restlessness, of a sense of movement, that, you know, right from your origins, your own origin story has this sort of sense of, you know, complete impermanence. That's what he likes. Mm -hmm. uh, the book itself is a sort of, 
chronological narration, really, of his life, but it's of his life events, but mixed with his own lyrics, mixed with writings related to those. Uh, and you sort of you you take various songs and the albums and and analyze those and tell us kind of where he was in his head at the time. Well, I take the first decade of his life because it seemed to me that it 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 formed a pleasing whole in that the first nine records that he records. Uh, which are all original compositions, were all produced in Los Angeles and about Los Angeles. And there's an astonishing kind of development, both musically and um, in terms of his persona, who Tom Waits really is, in that period. And yes, he 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 works, and, and it's the secret to his art, I guess, is the way in which he can blend elements of, of culture and elements of autobiography. So he picks up all kinds of narratives from film noir or from pulp fiction, from the films of someone like Sam Fuller or Nicholas Ray, great American directors of the 50s, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity is a huge influence, for example, but also Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, the work of, say, Nelson Olgren or... Uh, Flannery O'Connor. He's a he's a really big reader, despite leaving school at, at you know at fifteen or sixteen. Never went to you know fully fully went to college. So he became kind of self educated and re- enriched in American literature. But he was also taking from Kerouac's idea the the idea in the Beats, the search for kind of moments of being, moments or uh, epiphanies, moments of beauty, beatitude as the beats come from that idea that you know you you search and trawl through american social uh, life it may be seem banal but you can find these these epiphanies and i think you know he finds his voice really as a as a young uh, singer songwriter first of all on the second album which is heart of saturday night and that comes directly from Kerouac's book, Visions of Cody, where the, the, the protagonist is hurrying through the traffic to the, trying to get to the heart of Saturday night. So he literally lifts an idea, and he was very influenced by Kerouac. I mean, Kerouac actually recorded some albums which uh, were spoken word poems, sort of prosody, set to a very kind of minimal jazz uh, piano. And that was one of the early uh, models for, for, for Waits. But he, he develops. I mean, by the time he's... I suppose on an album like Blue Valentine, which is about six or seven albums in six album into his 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 LA years, he's drawing on blues. He's drawing on a, on a much more kind of electrified kind of New Orleans R and B second line kind of sound. So there is a there is a move away from the early jazz to a darker, more electrified sound, which which. I think is really interesting because it parallels his own experience of the city. Mm-hmm. L.A. was a very violent and dark a place in the 70s and 80s. A lot of violence, uh, very corrupt police force, uh, gang uh, wars going over, you know, going on in terms of drugs. And all of that, you know, he channels. So his view of L.A. and his view of himself on the streets of L.A., if you like, darkens. You know, there's there's a kind of honeyed uh, lyricism, really, to something like Heart of Saturday Night. But by the time you get to Heart Attack and Vine, which is this sort of penultimate L.A. album, 
it's a snarl of a of a of a sort of street preacher, a cynical pusher or a pimp. I mean, he really em- embraces the dark the dark side of LA. And how how similar is Tom Waits the man to Tom Waits the persona, the man with the whiskey bottle and and living in 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 the Tropicana, this kind of very dissolute, seemingly dissolute life? Was that who he was, or was that his persona? Well, it's quite complex, and and I mean the answer is it was and it wasn't. I mean it was his persona. It was something that he deliberately took aspects of himself but then projected it further. He was and is, you know, a consummate actor. So at the end of the period that my book looks at, in, in you know, by the time of 83, his film career is taking off and that's no accident. You know, his his persona starts to split by the time of Swordfish Trombones. He thinks that he no longer has to be, you know, just Tom Waits, the drunken jazz boho poet. He can be a mutant dwarf. He can be a lovelorn sailor from Singapore, as a couple of the early songs on the first side of, of, of Swordfish Trombone. So, so he learns, if in, in other words, to kind of move from essentially a romantic notion of the artist, which is about being authentic and trying to close the distance between yourself and your material, live the life that your songs are about almost, to a much more Brechtian idea of of foregrounding the artificiality of performance and therefore many personas can be embraced. And that gives him huge freedom, I think, which the whole of the rest of his career sort of flows from. Mm. But to go back to the kind of the classic Waitsian, drunken, growling pianist who's muttering or delivering uh, beat-type lyrics, which was the hallmark of his sort of mid-70s persona, people really couldn't tell. I mean, this, he was so good at it, they really couldn't tell that he was putting on this act. But then also, you know, there's that kind of way in which the mask hardens into the face. He was drinking heavily. He was, you know, his father, Frank, was an alcoholic and he had a very, therefore, complex relationship with his father and with alcohol. I mean, and, you know, he both celebrates... It in, in songs, but also ironise it. You know, a classic song is, you know, it's the piano that's been drinking. He's aware of becoming stereotype and hackneyed and just delivering what an audience wants. And there's a period, really, in the late 70s where he's very frustrated. He can't break out of it. He kind of has a sort of stasis. So, I mean, that's a long answer, Georgina, uh, but essentially it is complex because he is Tom Waits, that persona, mm. But of course, isn't as well at the same time. And he had a, a couple of very close friends. So, so he was having an affair with Ricky Lee Jones, sort of on and off for a lot of that time. His friend also Chuck Vice. Chucky Vice, yes. Well, they very much, I think, sort of partly modelled themselves on. There's a sort of famous love triangle with Kerouac and Neil Cassidy and his wife. And they call themselves, or Ricky Lee Jones certainly call themselves, a sort of romantic dreamers. And for a sort of time, they were like a kind of band apart, a, a Goddard reference of, of, of three spirits set against the world, running around, having high antics in kind of West Hollywood. And I think it made a break for Waits, because instead of, of mining film noir and the past, if you like, other people's legends, other people's myths, other people's versions of L.A., he, at that point, with Ricky Lee Jones and Chucky Vice, was creating his version, a contemporary version, on the streets of West Hollywood. But, of course, like 
I suppose, a contemporary version of A Star is Born, which, you know, celebrates or looks at a, a male artist being overshadowed by a younger female artist who suddenly has enormous success. This is exactly what happened with Waits and with Ricky Lee Jones. She recorded the, 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 um, the song Chucky's In Love, which famously came from a conversation that Tom Waits had, you know, he was on the phone to Chucky from Denver, where he was or whatever, and he said, oh, you know, Chucky's in love again. And that stuck, and that became an enormous international hit. Mm. And, and her album, her first album, was hugely well-received and, and promoted by Warners and the way in which his albums for Asylum had never had been, yeah. really didn't get behind them. So all of a sudden, he was kind of leapfrogged. And, of course, she was doing very much, a kind, you know, Waitsian material, the sort of low side of the road. So I think I think that caused, obviously, tensions. But also drugs. I, I, I don't think he was ever a major drug user, but certainly Ricky Lee Jones, in her autobiography, Last Chance Texaco, talks about the way in which her heroin use was behind their kind of split. Uh, and Jackie Vice also later, you know, has had a lot of drug dependency issues. So, you know, he had to kind of move away really, from, the, from those influences. His, his album Blue Valentine, was that for, for Ricky Lee? I mean, because it's all, it's about people who meet violent deaths. It is. It's very much a kind of coded Valentine to Ricky Lee Jones. Um, the first song, which is an unusual cover for, for Waits, is a version of the West Side Story Somewhere, which was Ricky Lee Jones' you know, favourite uh, musical. She's photographed on the inner sleeve in a, in a red dress, a really sort of standout scarlet. And red is very much the kind of colour of that album. You know, there are songs that are entitled, you know, Red Shoes by the Drugstore. There is Romeo is Bleeding. The, the, there's a lot of blood in Blue Valentine. And the red is very much associated with Ricky uh, Lee, a uh, little blue jay in a, in, a, in a red dress, he calls it at one point. So I, I, I think, you know, if you look at the at the albums, that the covers, the, the, the representations that, that Waits chooses, he's always signalling certain things about not just the contents of the music, but his intent in terms of how he's kind of seeing himself. And Chucky Weiss is also included in a photograph of uh, on Blue Valentine. So it's very much exploring their life and mm. the life of the city at that time, yeah. He does get disenchanted with the city, though, and he moves off to, to New York and tries his luck there, not really successfully. That's right. He, he, he does try to escape around about 1980, uh, knowing that he'd reached a kind of creative stasis and was really, I think, just treading water, going nowhere. But then he gets this call out of the blue from Francis Ford Coppola, who was thinking about a romantic musical, a sort of reworking of a sort of classic MGM, but in the early 80s. And he'd heard this song, I Don't Talk to Strangers, a, a rare duet that, that Waits had done um, on an album about three years earlier, which he thought was perfect. Well, that's the film, the, 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 this dialogue between a man and a woman. And Waits had brilliantly created a song which is a kind of cinematic scene. At the end of the song, the woman, you know, softens slightly, but there's really no, no contact between the, 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 the two people. And so 
Coppola says, well, why don't you write the score for this film? And I think, I think you know, Waits' score for one from the heart, the eventual, you know, movie, is one of uh, the, the, the best scores you can listen to. It absolutely perfectly encapsulates this idea of both the importance but the fragility of romantic love. And then, of course, at the same time as writing the score, he falls in love. He meets on the, the lot in... On the film lot, uh, for, for One from the Heart, he meets uh, Kathleen Brennan, falls deeply in love, and they're married only a few months after that. And he says very, very clearly on an, in a number of interviews that she saved him. Deus Ex Machina was this, you know, he really was like a sort of wound-up toy that was just kept banging into a wall at that stage. And she came with all sorts of other creative abilities i mean she was a story editor a script editor and from then on she becomes a very important co-collaborator a lot of his later work is co-written with his wife and she says look you've got to you've got to sever yourself from your la connections which he brutally did i mean he he had a very close relationship with a producer called burns howe who produced seven of the nine albums he was ended. He then separated himself from Herb Cohen, his manager, who Kathleen had revealed was actually kind of cheating him out of many uh, royalties. Uh, one by one, the the sort of coterie that he had around the Troubadour way, the, the club that he was associated with, Chucky Rice and so on, he moved away from all of that and became this, I suppose, kind of international artist. Mm. Kathleen Brennan almost kind of curated him, you know, and, and encouraged him to kind of really experiment with his with his voice and, and his 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 work. So he's, he develops musical theatre. Frank's Wild Years becomes first an album and then musical theatre after that. He works with Jim Jarmusch, uh, Robert Altman, as well as Coppola in, in, in film. He becomes Tom Waits on a global stage. Because my book is still very much about the L.A. Yeah, yeah. What, what did you learn about L.A., do you think? I mean, because you're a resident, obviously, you know modern-day L.A., but mm. but through Waits, through this journey through Waits' life and his music, what did it reveal to you about the city? Well, I've written a number of, of pieces for London Review of Books and Los Angeles Review of Books on artists and writers, directors who've tried to kind of come up with their versions, uh, whether it's F. Scott Fitzgerald, for example, in The Last Tycoon, Aldous Huxley, you know, who wrote about California from the late 30s onwards until, until his death. A wonderful woman I wrote a piece about called Salka Viertel, who uh, was the kind of German-speaking uh, host for all of those sort of amazing kind of figures like Brecht and Adorno and so on, who came to L.A. In, in the 30s. The great thing about L.A. is that it does have layer upon layer of artists who have written and represented it. So it's very difficult if to come at the city straight. There are so many versions of it in film, you know, in, in literature, as I said. So it seemed to me that this was a very good way for me to write about L.A. because Waits himself was such a sponge. He just soaked up so many of these different L.A. stories, putting, of course, ultimately his own vision of the sort of dark nocturnal heart of, of Los Angeles. 
It is the city of noir. It is the city where, you know, German expressionist filmmakers came and married their kind of vision, their pre-war vision and experience of the kind of breakup of the Weimar Republic. And that's then married to American pulp fiction of Chandler and Hammett. And therefore, you know, that this is the city that's the laboratory for noir where there is such kind of evident corruption. And, and, you know, Los Angeles City Council and Los Angeles Police Department arguably were probably the most corrupt in some ways in, in all of America in the 20th century. So so the reality and the the forms of aesthetic representation absolutely kind of mesh. And that's why it was such fertile ground for someone like Waits. You know, you, you could see on the streets but also through the pages of the writers that he loved, all kinds of ways in which L.A. stimulates this dark imaginary. Mm. I I want to ask you how your research was done, but the point is that I think it was research that was done over a lifetime. It comes from reading the beats, it comes from mm. listening to the music, it comes from living in the city. But I guess there were more recent or more immediate sources that you went to. Yes, absolutely. I... I um, Joan Didion's a great source because, you know, she lived there with John Gregory Dunn, of course, in the late 60s and and 70s. And Slouching Towards Bethlehem, I think, is a superb collection of essays that captures the sort of teetering insanity of uh, of L.A. Uh, Great love for Nathaniel West, uh, his... His, you know, great, great L.A. novel, The uh, the Day of the Locust, is clearly an influence on, on Waits, and I think it's, it's still one of the best best books about, about L.A. I mean, parts of Waits's world are still there. You can still find, for example, Cantor's The Jewish Deli down on Fairfax, Sunset Studio, where he recorded many of his albums, The Ivor Theatre, which was a sleazy burlesque theatre, which had this brilliantly named gay club called the Sewers of Paris, <laughs> which he writes about. But a lot of it's gone. I mean, the Troubadour as a, as a club has lost any kind of real life compared to what it was in the in the 70s when it was literally breaking and you know creating the reputations of of so many musicians and the Tropicana the legendary sleazy west coast version of the Chelsea Hotel where he had this kind of open residence that's long since been been bulldozed um one of my favorite clips of Waits actually is from a beautiful film, a little MTV video that was shot by a great cinematographer called Haskell Wexler. He shot it with a wide-angle lens and sepia and Waits uh, is singing this song in the neighbourhood and he he leads this kind of troupe of dwarfs and strong men, you know, some kind of Fellini um, circus ensemble, you know, with a kind of Nina Rota type kind of sort of heavy sound around his very home, around the place that he, he lived with with Kathleen in, in Silver Lake, singing in the neighbourhood, in the neighbourhood. And it's a kind of song of farewell to, to L.A. And, of course, that's just now a piece of tarmac. Mm. But, you know, you listen to the song, and if you listen to all of this work from, from Waits, they are still great song noirs. They still, you know, encapsulate that kind of, you know, reality, I think. And Song Noir is, in fact, the title of the book. Song Noir, Tom Waits and the Spirit of Los Angeles by Alex Harvey is published by Reaction Books. Alex, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Absolute pleasure, Georgina. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull, Chris Ablakwa and Maya Renfer. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.